0: Welcome to NSI Live, the National Security Institute's podcast home for NSI's public events, limited series podcasts, and breaking news podcasts. To learn more about NSI and register for upcoming events, visit nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter, at Mason Now, on with the show.
1: Thanks for joining us, everybody. I'm Jamil Jaffer, founder and executive director of the National Security Institute at George Mason University's Anton Scalia Law School. NSI was founded three years ago to fill a gap in academia by standing up for a robust American national security posture and providing realistic and actionable recommendations to policymakers. To achieve that goal, this year we're focusing on two big topics, countering China's rise and preserving U.S. technology innovation leadership. Today we're talking about that latter topic, technology innovation and American national security. The FCC plays a huge role in national security, even though you might not think it does. We're excited to have with us today SEC Chairman Ajit Pai, and Emily Chang, executive producer and anchor of Bloomberg Tech, for a conversation on what the FCC has done recently in national security and what further steps might be necessary to promote uh, innovation and protect Americans. Chairman Pai is, of course, the chairman of the FCC. He was designated chairman by President Donald Trump in January 2017. He previously served as a commissioner at the FCC and was unanimously confirmed by the U.S. Senate to that position in May of 2012. Prior to serving at the FCC, Chairman Pai served on the professional staff of the Senate Judiciary Committee, as chief counsel and deputy chief counsel, he's also served at the U.S. Department of Justice as senior counsel within the Office of Legal Policy, where I also worked, and as a trial attorney within the within the Antitrust Division. Emily Chang is a San Francisco-based anchor and executive producer of Bloomberg Technology, Bloomberg's weekly weekday television technology program. She's also the author of *Brotopia*, breaking up the boys' club in Silicon Valley, published in February 2018. If you haven't read it, you have to pick up a copy. It is awesome. Uh, Ms. Chang reports on global technology and media. Companies and the starts that be, may become them. She's the host of Bloomberg Television's interview series Studio 1.0, where she's interviewed folks as diverse as Andreessen Horowitz's co founder, Mark Andreessen, YouTube CEO, Susan Wachowski, Malcolm author Malcolm Gladwell, screenwriter Aaron Sorkin, and mega upload founder, Kim.com, while he was under house arrest at his New Zealand mansion. Now, it's interesting because, of course, here we are in the middle of COVID. We're all sort of in a form of house arrest. So <laughs> we're excited to have Chairman Pai. Emily, over to you. Uh, you have the first 30 minutes with Chairman Pai, and then uh, I will I will engage with his chief of staff, Matthew Berry, uh, in a conversation after you all have have takeoff. So, Emily, over to you.
2: Thank you so much, Jamil. and Chairman Pai. Thank you so much for joining us. I thought I would start with a very serious national security threat. This, um, you can see this all the way from China. What are you thinking? <laughs> What's the story story behind the mug? I mean, I had to ask.
0: Yeah, so uh, I'm a big fan of coffee and I love Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. And uh, when my then girlfriend, now wife, were uh, were in Hershey, Pennsylvania, we stopped by the uh, Hershey store and I saw this mug and I thought it was filled up with Reese's Peanut Butter Cups and I thought, I've got to get it. Then when I became a commissioner a couple of years later, we would have these FCC meetings. By law, the FCC has to have a meeting every single month uh, where we vote on different things teed up by the chairman. And sometimes these meetings would run a little long and you know I'd start to get a little fidgety. i needed need a little coffee. So I thought, why don't I bring the mug in? And it just became uh, sort of iconic. Then when John Oliver did a skit involving the mug, as you might remember three years ago, the mug itself took on a life of its own. And so, uh, every now and then when I do town halls with students or do events, you know, serious events with people in the industry, uh, we do a lot of important Q&A, but then people will ask, is that real? Do you still have it? Do you actually use it? And I have to tell them it is a real and functioning mug. It's uh, been a key contributor to our success over the last four years.
2: Uh, Thank you so much for sharing that story. I had to start there because it was such an easy target. Um, Moving on to the real issues, you know, obviously you've had quite an eventful um, chairmanship. You mentioned the John Oliver skit. Um, Perhaps the most significant action that the FCC took under your tenure was designating Huawei and ZTE as national security threats. Why did you think that was such an important move?
0: I think it's important because this FCC has placed a very high priority on securing the supply chain. That is the process by which equipment and services that go into our telecom networks are manufactured, sold, distributed, and ultimately integrated. And especially as we emerge into a 5G environment, 5G, of course, being the next generation of wireless connectivity, these communications technologies are going to transform entire industries From transportation to healthcare uh, from manufacturing to education and even though that's exciting of course getting all these new devices and sectors connected it also increases the attack surface so to speak uh, since there are potential vulnerabilities and so in addition to promoting all that innovation and investment in u.s communications networks we've taken aggressive action to make sure that those networks are secure this is not an area where we can take a risk and simply hope for the best we want to think about security now before we start on making sure that all these emerging technologies are incorporated.
2: Now, I've interviewed a number of Huawei executives who completely deny that Huawei would ever use their equipment to spy on U.S. citizens or the U.S. government. I've also spoken to business leaders who would be in a position to know they don't believe that Huawei is doing this or would do this. What is the evidence that you have seen that convinced you that this is a problem?
0: Well, the FCC designated Huawei and ZTE as potential national security threats. And that was based upon some of the facts that we collected in our record, the considered judgment, for example, of the intelligence community and the national security agencies, the careful analysis by many of China's uh, legal framework. uh, One portion of the national intelligence law, for example, requires companies subject to its jurisdiction, which of course Huawei and ZTE are, to comply with requests from the intelligence services and not to disclose the fact of such requests to any of its customers. And just generally speaking, when we talk to uh, companies here in the United States, to companies and our counterparts abroad, there's a shared understanding of the need for a risk-based framework that we're not looking to single out any particular company. It's just understanding the potential attack surface on all these communications networks and thinking, is it worth taking the risk on a company like Huawei or ZTE, which does have ties to the Communist Party and has a legal obligation to comply with dictates from the Chinese Communist Party? That is not a risk we're willing to take. And increasingly, other countries and companies are seeing it the same way.
2: You spent a lot of time traveling around the world as a diplomat trying to convince other countries and other governments to, to get on board with this. And at the time, I remember, because uh, we reported on this, um, it sounded like they weren't buying it. They weren't you know, jumping on board. Now we are seeing some countries change their tune. What were those trips like for you?
0: It was incredible. One of the things that I did not expect when I took this job was the international component of the work. Of course, everyone understands that the FCC regulates domestic communications networks, but we're living in an increasingly interconnected world, and nowhere is that more evident than when it comes to 5G. And so over the last couple of years in particular, I've had the chance to travel to pretty much every nook and cranny of the world from Bahrain to Malaysia, spoken to the prime minister of India, my counterparts in Brazil and Israel about these issues. And what I find is an increasingly receptive audience. They too want to capture the benefits of 5G for for their citizens, but they also understand that security has to be thought of in advance. We can't simply build these networks quickly and then work security protocols in as an afterthought. And so uh, it's been a lot of work and there's a lot of skepticism here in the country. And even at the FCC in some cases where people said, well, what results are we getting? No one's really listening to us. But now you see all of these countries, obviously the United Kingdom, in July, making a decision to remove uh, certain Huawei equipment, following other European countries doing the same, we see carriers now doing the same, from Orange in France to SK and KT in um, Singapore and uh, Telstra in Australia. So we're making a lot of progress, and that's very gratifying. The other thing I'll point out is it's not just bilateral, you have the U.S. and another country. There's there are multilateral efforts as well, and I have been a part of the U.S. delegation to Prague, uh, where the Czech government hosted what ultimately became a conference. Focus on the Prague proposals, a risk-based framework that some 32 countries agreed to, and now it's being used as a model for other countries to study. And I think that collaborative effort, where the US is not dictating anyone else in the world, but simply expressing our views and hearing other countries' views and coming to a consensus, that is a very powerful model that is now producing significant results.
2: You also banned China Mobile from providing service to the United States, and I know the Trump administration has asked you to investigate other telecom carriers, you are investigating uh, some other Chinese telcos. What is the status of that?
0: So our staff has been hard at work reviewing some of the submissions that we've gotten, and in particular, uh, the Department of Justice and uh, other executive branch agencies have given us input. Uh, And I think that reflects the model of cooperation we now have. You mentioned China Mobile, where there we also received very significant input from the executive branch because we wanted to make sure we were canvassing to get all of the facts before we made a decision. And unlike the situation that you would see in the People's Republic of China, we actually had a system of due process where the other side was able to advance its views as well. And then we reached an informed decision. And so yeah, that's certainly the way the SEC has done business. And uh, I think it's a good model uh, going forward.
2: Now, tension with China has continued to escalate under the Trump administration on a number of matters unrelated to the FCC, But some would say that, uh, you know, there is a concern that the fact that tensions have escalated so much under the Trump administration between the U.S. and China, that that is actually a concern to national security, that China could feel more emboldened to develop its own technology independently. Are you at all concerned that that could be dangerous?
0: Well, I think that the Chinese Communist Party has made clear, and uh, General Secretary Xi Jinping has very much made clear, that they want to seize the strategic advantage in certain technologies. 5G is one uh, that they've identified, but there are adjacent technologies as well, artificial intelligence and machine learning, quantum computing, even blockchain. There have been some developments within China. And so I think whether we like it or not, the fact is that the Chinese Communist Party wants to move aggressively ahead, and they view the internet economy as essentially being a walled garden within China that uh, they want to drive through the scale that, of course, the uh, the China has a lot of the development of the technological standards, the deployment of 5G, etc. And so I think one of the things that we've done over the last four years, certainly at the FCC, is to recognize that we need to take these issues seriously. We need to be proactive in securing the supply chain, aggressive in executing the FCC's 5G fast plan, which has been incredibly successful so far and encourage the technologies of the future, Uh, open radio access networks, for example, essentially using software to replace some of the problematic hardware vendors that we see in the cases of Huawei and CTE. Those are the kinds of things that may cause friction with China, but they're essential for us to ensure that 5G networks here and abroad are strong and secure.
2: How concerned are you that China is arguably well ahead of the U.S. in 5G already?
0: I'm not that concerned. I know that that's a popular talking point among some here in Washington and elsewhere, but if you look at the objective facts, the reality is that the United States is doing exceptionally well on 5G. I mentioned the 5G fast plan, and we have three planks of that plan, getting more spectrum into the commercial marketplace, making it easier to deploy wireless infrastructure and promoting fiber deployment. And objectively speaking, this is not me speaking, we've been really successful. We've pushed out more spectrum through commercial auctions in the, over the last three and a half years than was held by all mobile broadband providers combined when I took office. On wireless infrastructure, 87,000 small cells deployed over the last three years, 46,000 of them in 2019 alone. That is significantly more than from 23, 2013 to 2016 combined. In our fiber deployment, we set a record in 2018, a record that was only broken in 2019. So the regulatory framework we've put in place at the FCC has set building blocks in place, if you will, that the private sector is now using to deliver 5G value. And we're seeing 5G services now being deployed to consumers. Enterprise-based 5G is going to be a tremendous boost I think in the years to come. And so I think we've provided a great home for innovators and entrepreneurs here in the United States. And we've got the free market rule of law uh, and entrepreneurial spirits to back that up.
2: How do you think our relationship with China will change under a new administration?
0: You know, it's difficult to say, of course, uh, the uh, Chinese-United States relationship is a very complex one, one that goes well beyond the SEC's boundaries. But um, I think what you see now is a general recognition that the Chinese Communist Party has a very determined view about the way that it wants to order the world. Uh, It's not content to simply focus internally. Now we see them exporting some of their own values abroad. And yes, I've mentioned on Twitter quite frequently, for example, the fact that uh, if they're willing to take action to cause censorship on things like basketball and flag emojis uh, or games, what will it mean if they're from equipment based uh, from Chinese manufacturers and subject to Chinese law is then incorporated into our communications networks? And you see a growing recognition. I think the FCC has spoken with a bipartisan voice. We see people on Capitol Hill speaking with a bipartisan voice as recently as this week when they passed legislation saying that we need to think about open radio access networks solutions as a way of navigating around some of the problems that we've seen with Huawei and CTE.
2: I have that tweet, Chairman Pai, actually. (laughs) You said, if this is how China is willing to leverage, use its leverage over basketball, esports, and flag emojis, imagine what could happen if we let Chinese companies' equipment into America's 5G networks. That was after China pulled uh, NBA games from state-run TV. That said... The games have started running again almost as if nothing has happened and I wonder is it possible there's more bark than bite?
0: I don't know I, I can only speak for myself and uh, as you will see I am I never uh, cease to speak up when I think that there's an issue that needs to be addressed in this area and that's why in 5g security I've been leading the charge it hasn't been easy uh, these are very difficult issues It involve some tough uh, conversations with companies some of which will say well look Chinese equipment is cheaper, or we perceive it's better, or foreign governments that say, well, it could rupture some of our relations on non-telecom issues. But at the end of the day, what has carried these conversations, I believe, to a positive result in most cases, is the fact that 5G and communications generally will be the foundation for virtually everything that you want to do as a country or as a company. And I think that leaders recognize that Pennywise, Pound Foolish is not a viable solution in the long run. And especially when you see the Chinese Communist Party's overarching strategy across the board, from telecom to human rights and surveillance, etc. This is not something that we can risk going forward.
2: Do you think the stance on Huawei and ZTE will change under the next administration, under the next FCC? And if not, how do you see it changing?
0: All I can say is that thus far, the FCC has spoken with a unified bipartisan voice. And when you think about it, that makes sense. Uh, Whether it's a 5G network being built in New York City or in Navajo Nation, everybody wants that to be secure. That's not a Republican issue or a Democratic issue. Uh, When it comes to making sure that we provide the funding necessary for smaller carriers to be able to remove this equipment, there too, uh, Congress has not seen a partisan affiliation. And so I think that the recognition of the Chinese Communist Party as a threat in this area the recognition of the threat that Huawei and CT, in particular can pose, and the recognition that we all need to work together, Congress and the uh, executive branch and independent agencies, is something they think speaks very well about uh, the unity on this issue.
2: At the same time, your FCC also ended the most direct FCC regulation of broadband networks, which some would say undermined their security. How does the FCC work to ensure that broadband networks remain secure under this new framework?
0: I would argue completely to the contrary. The decision we made to remove utility-style regulation has been a fantastic benefit to the American people since we made that decision back in 2017 to remove those net neutrality utility-style regulations. Speeds in the United States have doubled with respect to fixed broadband. Millions more Americans have access to the internet. And over the last eight months of the pandemic, what is notable is that even as millions of people are moving home and increasing the demand on on the internet, Uh, The networks have been architected in such a way to uh, sustain all of that traffic. In fact, fixed and mobile broadband speeds have increased during the pandemic. That would not have happened if we had utility-style regulation. The best evidence of that is Europe. Europe has that utility-style regulation that some net neutrality advocates love. And Thierry Breton, one of the European commissioners, had to go hat-in-hand to YouTube and Netflix and other streaming services at the beginning of the pandemic and ask them to proactively throttle content to video consumers from HD. To SD because they had not had the infrastructure investment that gave the European Union confidence that the networks would hold up. That's not something we've seen here in the United States. And I would argue that there's an also a big benefit when it comes to security. Companies now have, because they have uh, certainty in terms of building these networks, now they have the luxury of thinking, okay, now we need to think about security of those networks as well as the business case for building them in the first place.
2: Your decision on net neutrality spawned thousands of public comments, protests in the streets, that John Oliver segment where he was arguing in opposition to the decision that your FCC made. What is it like to make a decision that feels so unpopular?
0: You know, I think the key is to have the courage of your convictions. And I knew when we went down this path, be, there would be an outcry, I mean, no doubt about it. This has been a hot button issue since well before I got to the FCC. But at the end of the day, I think uh, the wisdom on this issue was drawn from Gandalf, who in the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring, as you might remember, says to Frodo, that is not for you to choose. All that is left for you to choose is what to do with the time that is given to you. I knew it was the right decision, and I knew that time would vindicate that decision. And sure enough, here we are three years later, and now when you go on Twitter or you go on other social media platforms and read about net neutrality, some of the people are wondering, whatever happened with that issue? I was promised the Internet was going to die Yet here we are tweeting. And it's useful to go look at those predictions. I mean, the Senate Democratic Caucus promised us in February of 2018 that if we got rid of these regulations, you, w- you would get the internet one word at a time. CNN proclaimed that this is the end of the internet as we know it. Bernie Sanders said the same thing. And so I think all of these hyperbolic claims of destruction and death and woe and whatnot have all fallen by the wayside. And in fact, we have an internet economy that is stronger than ever, that is delivering better value than ever for American consumers. And ultimately, I think the market-based framework, the bipartisan framework that started under President Clinton and continued for the first six years of President Obama, that market-based framework we restored is the right one for the American consumer.
2: That said, it's likely that the next FCC will try to undo a lot of what you accomplished in your tenure. And bringing back net neutrality is is top of the list. I'm curious how you reflect on that as you look back uh, on the years and look ahead to Inauguration Day.
0: Well, we have done an incredible job, I think, on executing on the core parts of our agenda, closing the digital divide, advancing American leadership in 5G, making sure that we benefit consumers in terms of uh, proactive enforcement on things like robocalls and things like addressing markets that have, some for some people, have fallen through the cracks. And for example, regulating the rates that inmates pay uh, when they call people on the outside. And so, those are the kinds of things that we've executed on. And I would argue that none of them know a necessarily party line affiliation. Again, as I mentioned, even net neutrality, that was a market based framework that started under President Clinton. His FCC chairman made the courageous and correct decision, I think, not to subject telecom networks at the dawn of the commercial internet to heavy handed regulation. That was the right decision for the internet economy. So, I hope that the key decisions that we've made will be seen similarly in the decades to come. And especially when you think about some of the emerging technologies that we've encouraged, you know, non-geostationary satellite orbit constellations like SpaceX and OneWeb, uh, pushing out a ton more uh, unlicensed spectrum for Wi-Fi, a 5X increase in mid-band spectrum over the last year or so. I mean, it's just been incredible some of the things we've been able to do, and we've done it generally in a bipartisan way. So uh, notwithstanding some of the hot-button issues that some people might know about, the, the lesson to take away is that this FCC has moved aggressively on a consensus basis, to deliver value for the American people.
2: Congress still hasn't allocated the funding for rip and replace. Your agency determined it would cost something like $2 billion to rip out all the Huawei and and ZTE equipment and and replace that. Now that Congress is in a lame duck session, how important is it that uh, you think that get passed and, and what is on your agenda for the next few weeks?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. So just yesterday, uh, I, I, ta- I teed up the supply chain order that I would ask my fellow commissioners to vote on at our December 10th meeting. And among other things, that supply chain item sets up a secure and trusted reimbursement program so that smaller carriers uh, can be able to remove and replace that problematic equipment. But the gap is that we need to get that appropriation from Congress. and That's something I've been working with Congress for several months, and I hope here, too, they can work quickly and in a bipartisan way to allocate that funding. It's a necessary part of making sure that our networks are secure, uh, not just in terms of the equipment that will be incorporated going forward, but looking backward as well. We're able to identify and remove that equipment. And so uh, very hopeful that they'll be able to work with dispatch on that uh, solution.
2: Are you planning to take any action on Section 230?
0: Uh, so there I announced in October, as so you might remember, uh, that my intent to uh, commence a rulemaking to uh, interpret the uh, immunity provision of Section 230. And uh, you have no news to report today on that front.
2: Well, as a journalist, I have to ask, Chairman Um <laughs> As you know, uh, with the Biden administration incoming, you're expected to follow long-standing tradition, which means stepping down before Inauguration Day. But you don't actually have to. And you could stay on as a commissioner. Um, What are your plans?
0: Well, my plans right now are, as you might have seen uh, from my blog post yesterday, just to make sure we have a successful December meeting. We have a lot of very meaty items teed up and otherwise to do the bread and butter work of the FCC. And we have a lot. We have a big C-band auction coming up on December 8th. This is going to be the largest 5G auction of mid-band spectrum ever in the United States, we've already gotten a lot of great bidders and I think it's going to be very successful. So uh, yeah, I know there's a process for uh, the election certification and the GSA ascertainment, all those processes are going to play out, but I'm going to focus on what's right in front of me, which is my job leading this great agency and the tremendous career staff that have allowed us to deliver so much uh, productive uh, value for the American consumer.
2: Facilitating the spread of 5G is going to be a really important job of the next FCC, whatever that FCC looks like, what do you think their top priorities should be, given that this is a national security issue?
0: Well, one of the things that I have made a priority is not just closing the digital divide, but making sure we do it in a responsible way. And so uh, to address the digital divide part of 5G, I've proposed the creation of a 5G fund that would target those parts of the country that are unlikely to see 5G deployment from private sector companies absent federal support. And here I'm thinking of, for example, sparsely populated rural areas where you might only have one person per square mile, but what if that one person is, for example, a farmer that needs to have very high speed, low latency 5G services in order to enhance the productivity of his farm? That's the kind of thing we're looking to do. And similarly, with respect to uh, the uh, future looking uh, networks, one of the things that is included in the supply chain item that uh, we'll be voting on in December 10th is encouraging the development of open radio access network technologies as a replacement for the problematic legacy equipment. And so... To the extent of course that Congress provides funding, one of the things that we would open the door to if the commissioners agree with my proposal is to enable companies that have 4G or 3G equipment that from these problematic carriers to replace it with potential open radio access network solutions. That's a way of encouraging, in a market based way, these companies to incorporate the software based networks of the future as opposed to the more problematic hardware based vendors of the past. And so, you know, here too, I think that we provided a model for leadership from the SEC working collaboratively with everybody uh, in, the, in the industry uh, to reach a more secure result.
2: Now, you offered vigorous criticism back in 2018 when a proposal surfaced for na- a national 5G wholesale network. Now that idea is back. What's your opinion of it today?
0: My views haven't changed. Uh, one thing you can say about me is that you know I have my convictions. I'm going to stick with them. And here, too, uh, that applies. I do believe that the market, as opposed to the government or through some sort of wholesale arrangement, the market is best delivered, best positioned to deliver value to the wireless consumer. And history proves that out. The FCC got, for example, auction authority from Congress in 1993, building on the famous paper from Ronald Coase back in 1959. And over the last 27 years, we've auctioned off Spectrum. Those companies that bought the Spectrum have created wireless networks there and and the envy of the world. The US, for example, led the world in 4G LTE, I believe we are going to lead in 5G as well. And perhaps the best proof of concept that we're on the right track with that vision is the Nobel Committee, which gave the prize for economic science this year alone to Paul Milgram and Robert Wilson for their work on auction theory in designing FCC spectrum auctions. I mean, I think that is per- perhaps the best testament to the fact that the market-based vision is the one that is best calibrated to meet the challenges of the wireless future.
2: Do you believe that the White House supports the proposal?
0: Uh, You'd have to ask them. uh, I'm not sure uh, which uh, entity uh, you might have in mind. uh, But what I will say is that from my own vision, uh, the the market is, again, uh, has been proven to deliver value in the past. And I think it's going to deliver value in the future. In fact, it is delivering value today with 5G as opposed to uh, the more command and control version that some countries have embraced.
2: So you touched on ORAN earlier, open radio access networks, which, uh, you know, it is is—it's sort of a vague term. Some people don't necessarily understand it, but it involves giving um, authority to the carriers and giving, basically kind of putting security into their hands. How secure do you think ORAN is as an alternative to what we have now?
0: Great question. So I think it is very, has great potential to be secure. In fact, more so than the current iterations. For example, right now with the closed architecture that the hardware vendors uh, might give you, you're essentially as a carrier saying to the vendor, okay, you operate the network, the core elements of the network, and you know let us know how things are going. I mean, gen- reducing things to uh, a great generalization, of course. But the potential of o ran is to put the keys to security in the hands of the operator. Because the operator is the one figuring out, okay, this is how the different components uh, fit, This is how we want to tailor the network. We can design security as we see fit and have insight, direct insight into how the network is operating. And there's a number of different pairs of eyes that can look at uh, the network to see how it's operating. Uh, The other aspect of that is, of course, that this is a collaborative effort. There's a thing called the Oran for Alliance, for example, that has a security working group. And one of the things they're working on is coming up with a shared understanding of some of the security protocols, coming up with best practices that carriers can use. And so I think as this technology becomes more and more commonplace, you're going to see some of those technical standards or quasi-technical standards or best practices being embraced by carriers. And that's a very, very powerful tool, I think, for ensuring security.
2: So as we head closer to uh, Inauguration Day, what are your hopes for how the next FCC or where and next, FCC can find common grounds with yours.
0: Well, you know, as I always said, uh, our agenda has been America's agenda. I don't think it's known a political affiliation at all. And so, you know, I think back to some of the trips I've done here in the United States. And one of the last trips I did before the pandemic was to the Wind River Reservation in small Ithidi, Wyoming, where I had a chance to meet with Northern Arapaho tribal leaders who, uh, thanks in part to an FCC grant in 2018, uh, had tasked their tribally owned internet provider, Wind River Internet to build high-speed networks of the tribal school, tribal healthcare clinic, and various homes. And you know, to see in the faces of those who've been on the wrong side of the digital divide what it meant for them to finally have what I call digital opportunity, it was so gratifying, not just as a regulator, but as an American citizen. And so I hope that that is the kind of ethos that this agency will always be known for, is, is speaking on behalf of the American people, and more importantly, doing on behalf of the American people. That's a really rich legacy that I think we've built and hopefully all future FCCs will embrace it as well.
2: All right, so if you go, is the mug going with you or are you willing to pass it down? Please, we, we all wanna know.
0: As you know, I mean, the mug is an independent actor. It will have to make its own determinations uh, in due course, but uh, it will certainly weigh in very heavily uh, with it. It's been a trusted friend and ally and as a key component in virtually everything I've done over the last four years.
2: All right, Chairman Pai, thank you so much for joining us. Great, great, great to have you. Um, and, and Jamil, thank you for having us both as well.
0: Thank you so much, Emily, for having me. And it's a great salute to the National Security Institute, and in particular, its founder and executive director, my old friend Jamil, the terrific leader on national security. He's forgotten more about this stuff than I'll ever know.
1: <laughs> Listen, thanks, uh, Emily, Ajit. Uh, thanks so much for being here with us today. I know you guys both have to run, uh, but thanks for taking the time to have this great conversation. Audience, stay with us. We've got a great leader and uh, Matthew Berry, who is going to have a conversation with us, take some of the questions in the chat um, about some of the great topics. Obviously, critically important issues of national security, uh, technology innovation, national security um, here that we've talked about. Um, uh, you know who knew we'd talk about a uh, Reese's peanut butter mug um, and uh, Indian reservations in the context of this conversation. Uh, but what a great conversation! So, uh, so folks, I see some of you heading out. Uh, please feel free to take off if you need to. But uh, I'm glad to welcome now with us, um, uh Ch- Chairman Pie's chief of staff, Matthew Berry. Prior to becoming chief of staff, uh, Matthew serves as the commission general counsel and deputy general counsel. In those roles, he's responsible for providing legal advice to the commission and managing the commission's litigation docket. And prior to joining Chairman Pai's office, well, then Commissioner Pai's office back in 2012, he was a partner of Patton Boggs, where he was a member of the firm's telecom uh, tele- technology and communications practice group. So uh, Matt, thanks for being here with us. I appreciate you being here. Um, and thanks for uh, filling in this last 30 minutes and taking some questions from the audience.
3: No problem, my pleasure to be here. Can you hear me?
1: I uh, can hear you, great. Um, and I you. see you're working like uh, like the rest of us out of our home offices. Um, I'm actually at uh, George Mason. I mean, we have to fill out these crazy forms. Uh, to be able to come to the office and what's actually behind me is not actually the logo it's a blank wall that my son and I uh, painted with that whiteboard paint. Um, and so I, have, I don't want to cover it up but we, that's why I've got the background going.
3: Well I'm in Ar- I live in Arlington so I'm not too far from you. I'm kind of north of Boston, so I'm within a couple miles.
1: Awesome. Well look we've kept a huge chunk of our audience. We had about 73 people on with Chairman Pie. We're down to only 69 so you are clearly a draw. So let's, uh, well- let's hop right to the questions from the audience. Um, the first question I saw uh, from, uh, from one of our uh, visiting fellows, uh, Harold Moss, asked about net neutrality. So I hope, I hope you don't mind talking about that. But sure. when Harold asked, um, with respect to net neutrality, isn't, aren't the performance improvements we see of a product um, and sort of the advance of technology, um, not il- isn't that really not really an elimination of utility-based regulation?
3: I'm sorry, could you repeat the question?
1: Yeah, so, uh, so one of the questions that Harold's asking is about, so when we're talking about net neutrality, right? Um, we're seeing performance advances right, in products, right? Um, right. Is it, are those really being driven by the elimination of utility-based regulations or is there something bigger going on here? Um, is net neutrality really the, the driver or lack thereof, the driver behind this?
3: So I, I think that just to step back for a minute, Um, When the commission in 2017 adopted the Restoring Internet Freedom Order and got rid of Title II regulations, some people call it net neutrality, um, you know, you may remember there was a wide range of predictions in terms of what was going to happen. It was the end of the Internet as we know it. You get the Internet one word at a time. You'd have to pay every time you tweet. You wouldn't be able to access your favorite websites and so on and so on and so on. Um, No, virtually all of those predictions have not come to pass. The world has not ended. Let's stipulate that. The internet is better than ever and it's free and open. And one question is, what has been the exact effect of the restoring internet freedom order? Right. And I would certainly be the first to concede that it is difficult to parse out exactly what advances are due to the restoring internet freedom order, exactly what advances would have occurred regardless. But I do think there are some facts that are worth talking about. The (laughs) record for fiber deployment in the United States, meaning the most fiber deployment we've ever had in a year, took place in 2018, the year after we adopted the restoring internet freedom order. We then broke that record again in 2019. So our two best years for fiber deployment in the United States were post uh, restoring internet freedom order. In terms of the number of small cells we deployed, we've deployed we deployed 46,000 uh, in 2019 alone. That was more than was deployed between 2013 and 2016 before we adopted the restoring internet freedom order. Right. speeds have more than doubled, according to UCLA, average speeds in the United States. So I cannot I would certainly not be the it would be wrong of me to say that every single advance we've made in the United States on broadband has been because of the restoring Internet freedom order. But I do think that the statistics indicate it has had a positive effect. And I also think that you should look at what has happened in the United States during the pandemic and compare that to what's happened in other countries that have adopted different policies and had less investment, let's say European countries. Mm-hmm. You know, in the United States, our networks have performed very well during the pandemic, perhaps the ultimate stress test. Right. Uh, we did not have to go hat in hand to Netflix, YouTube, et cetera, and say, please throttle your traffic so you don't overburden the networks. In Europe, where the facts are very clear, they've had less investment in networks over the years. And I think in part that's because of their strict net neutrality regulations. Interesting. Their regulators did have to go to content providers and say, please help us out. Please, you know, yeah. reduce the HD video to SD video. So I do think our policies so, have had a positive yeah. impact. I'll yeah. leave it to others to describe how much of a policy. Yeah. I,
1: so, you're, so, so let me see if I just understand the theory and make sure I get it right. So, so your theory of the case is that by sort of you know, broadening it out and letting sort of the the market play out, um, and not forcing sort of you know the net neutrality regulations in place, that that's actually driven the uptake of uh, of of broadband and and sort of encouraged because the because the, the content providers are now in the game in a bigger way, uh, forced providers to push out broadband faster and 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 at higher speeds. Is that is that a Error, sort of because, because that is sort of contrary to the story you hear about the net neutrality folks who say, no, it's actually the opposite. Like, tell me why you think, if, if I got that right, tell me why you think that's how it's played out as contrary to what, what the net neutrality advocates would have said is the play.
3: So, I, I mean, I think that when you reduce the regulatory burden on internet providers, mm-hmm. and that's just not getting rid of Title II utility regulation, that's other things we've done, such yeah. as reduce the cost of shifting from... Abandoning the copper networks and going to the fiber networks, making it easier and cheaper to put up to attach fiber to utility poles, et cetera. Right. When you reduce the regulatory burden on internet providers and provide them with a more favorable regulatory climate, I think that they are willing to invest a lot faster. and to yeah. build more uh, build more networks. And so that's the primary uh, thing right. of what I think is going on. But I do want to emphasize. The restoring internet freedom order and net neutrality is one aspect of the agenda, but we've had a broad ranging agenda to try to reduce unnecessary regulatory burdens to upgrading networks and to building out networks.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about about one of these areas that that, uh, the Chairman Pai talked about. So Joe Joe Williams, uh, one of our visiting fellows at NSI, um, asked about what other agencies are doing to support sort of the FCC's ORAN uh, sort of effort um you know who's in the game is it doe is dod in the game uh, what are they doing are they being helpful what, what sort of you know oran's obviously been the sort of the current It at, at least feels like based on what the chairman said feels like the current response to uh what we're going to do about the problem of huawei and zte yes we've we've barred them uh, now we need a positive agenda feels like oran is that positive agenda is that right and if so what are the other agencies doing in that space
3: so I, I do think it's part of. I definitely think it's part of the positive agenda, no question about it. I think that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is the fact that there are other uh, equipment providers out there, other than the Huawei and ZTE, that can and do provide trusted. Right, Nokia, equipment.
1: Ericsson, Samsung. Yeah, right, I'm not going to endorse
3: specific companies. Yeah, no, so no, of course, you, of course, not. I'll do, you know, all, yeah. all they are.
1: You can't. Say you it. know who I'm talking about?
2: Right.
3: Um, but I, I think in terms of the federal government approach. Um, I would point to NTIA in the Department of Commerce right. um, that I think it has an active role in this space. Uh, Rob Blair over at Commerce participated yeah. in our oran form uh, Oran workshop. I think that osTP in the White House mm-hmm. has been working on these issues. Um, in particular I point to someone who I think does a fantastic job across the board but on uh, 5g issues generally is Michael Kratzios who's now I guess both at the White House and the Pentagon so um, those are the two primary agencies I would um, I, I would point to in terms of help right. uh, in terms of supporting our, our efforts but I do think that um, there has been very good leadership in the executive branch on ORAN issues. I think obviously this is something that primarily takes place in the private sector, but I right. think that the administration has been very supportive of ORAN, and I do think in particular Commerce and OSTP are, are right. engaged on these issues.
1: Right. And speaking of Commerce, Diane Ronaldo, who's also a fellow at NSI, former acting administrator of, of NTIA, did a great job in that space. I think is working on those issues now in her private sector role. So that's she that's is, great. Yes. Yeah. Um, and another question from, uh, from, uh, from our audience, from Nicholas Krebs, I mean, he asks how the FCC can work, you know, we talked about national security with Chairman Pai, how can the FCC work with national security agencies and the U.S. tech sector uh, to better protect our telecom and internet platforms from being hijacked, or at least maybe utilized by state-sponsored actors, right? Are there, what's the state of the public-private partnerships in this space, and what's the FCC's role, if any, in sort of, in sort of helping engender those kind of partnerships to better defend our... Core networks here in the United States,
3: right? So I, I think it's important to realize from an operational perspective. Yeah. You know the um, primary uh, the primary responsibility for cybersecurity has been delegated by Congress to the Department of Homeland Security. Yeah. So when it comes to operational issues, uh, we are in a supportive role the Department of Homeland Security is in a lead role. And of course, there are a whole variety of other agencies that are in a supportive role. Right. Um, I think the FCC, what the FCC primarily, I think, can do is to establish policies that put our networks in a uh, position to be less susceptible to to successful attack. And I think that the the secure networks uh, work that we are doing the uh, supply chain work that we are doing that Chairman Pai discussed in detail. I think that's the primary thing that we can do. Um, I know that there are many people who advocate, who believe or advocate for us taking a more aggressive role on the operational side. Right. And my response to that is that, you know, it it certainly sounds good for more people to be doing more stuff, but it has to be done in an organized manner. And, it would be counterproductive in my view for the part, for the FCC to try yeah. to be replicating what the Department of Homeland Security is doing in that yeah.
1: area. In fact, one of our attendees actually asked that exact question. I wanna, wanna sort of go off of that question and ask you a related question. You know, there are proposals for the FCC to be more regulatory in the cybersecurity arena, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, my own perspective on that is, you know, regulations in the cybersecurity arena are counterproductive because, you know, regulations simply can't keep up even at an agency that's functioning well like the FCC, Simply so can't keep up with the with the nature of the technology uh, spread, and I actually worry that we create a compliance culture where we actually end up being less safe because we comply with outdated government regulations that don't that don't sort of effectively carry out cyber defense. Well, how do you think, and how does the FCC think about uh, this issue of regulation in the context of cybersecurity, or how should they think about it?
3: So you know, I, I think that it is. Really, you have to look at it on a case-by-case and issue-by-issue basis. Yeah. Um, I I think that one can't sit here and say that regulations are never appropriate in this space, nor should you sit here and say regulations are always appropriate in this space. Um, I think that there are two questions that we ask. Number one, is regulation appropriate? And number two, are we the appropriate entity to be doing it? Right. Um, I think in the supply chain category... Um, you know, we have both certain authorities of our own, and we've been given authorities by Congress in recent legislation. And so it's important that we implement those. Um, but other agencies, um, and in particular, I would point to Homeland Security and to Commerce, which mm-hmm. has been given certain authorities by the president in the uh, Communications Equipment Executive Order you know, they're in a better position to do thing, uh, regulations in other areas. So gotcha. one question is, should we, should it be the FCC? And the and the second question is, should if we so, be what? at all? Yeah. Yeah. And um, one thing that I would point to that I think has been very helpful on the FCC side mm-hmm. is that in lieu of regulation, um, we have something called the CISRIC, which is okay. a um, uh, an advisory, uh, advisory committee under yep. um, the Federal Advisory Committee act of
1: Fox this is committee. where private private entities come in and talk to you about stuff. is that right?
3: Yes, and they yes. are very active and they are assigned categories by the commission of issues to look into, and then they produce recommendations and best practices on security right. issues. They just These sort of
1: voluntary them. things
3: yes, and yes. those be- and those best practices. Um, Can be very, very effective. Mm. And when uh, the scissor comes out and says, you know, when it deals with 5CG security issues, here are best practices, one, two and three, that does put pressure on uh, companies to at least consider adopting them. And in many cases, they do adopt them. So I do think that there are cases where you don't need to regulate. You Mm -hmm. just bring together the private sector under the FCC purview you have them study an issue, you have them make right. recommendations, and those can have a very, very positive impact. We've seen that under both uh, Democratic FCCs and Republican right. FCCs.
1: Right. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, that, that, I, you know, it, I think it's really interesting to think about the fact that you all have a convening role you can play, too. You simply don't have to always act and regulate, right, or engage in a rulemaking, right? You can bring together people and have them, you know, put together these best practices that then people can implement at their own sort of discretion.
3: Yes, and and again, I mean, I, I think that there are certainly private sector standard bodies that do similar things. Right. But, um, I, I would point to the work of our CISRIC, which yeah. I think has done really good work in a lot of areas, putting out security, including network security best practices that have had a a positive impact on the private sector.
1: Yeah, great, great. Uh, so one of our one of our uh, another visiting fellow friend inside Brianna Tushi asks about. Um, Uh, you know, the U.S. government's efforts to migrate to the cloud, right? We've seen a a significant effort at DOD and other agencies uh, to make a big move to the cloud. Um, How has cloud computing affected the FCC, both in terms of your own internal operations, um, but then also with respect to the larger environment and how you all think about uh, the regulatory environment when it comes to cloud computing?
3: So to address the first part of that question first, um, we at the FCC have been doing a lot to try to migrate our operations to the cloud. Um, it both uh, increases the effect of the, our efficiency and effectiveness. And I would say particularly during the pandemic, the right. f- things that we did beforehand have had a very positive effect, but also when you do it right, you can significantly decrease your mm-hmm. IT expenditures versus uh, maintenance of legacy systems and the like. Right. So um, we've been aggressive in migrating to the cloud. I will say that it's one of those areas where if you had more money appropriated to you for that purpose, you could do more and do it quicker and probably save more money in the long run. But it's always one of those things when you're talking to either OMB about your budget request or the Congress that you can't necessarily get everything you want in terms of IT. Right but right. um i wholeheartedly endorse efforts to move government agency operations to the cloud it's had a very positive impact both financially and operationally from the fcc
2: yeah
3: um in terms of like specific regulation of cloud computing and the like that's not something that is specifically i would say in the fcc's bailiwick but i right. would say that you know with with the movement migration of things to the cloud the um importance of Broadband infrastructure and networks only increases, mm. um, and so I think it, pu- it it makes more important our general work in terms right. of strengthening, improving uh, broadband networks. Yeah,
1: you know I want to return to uh, the, the the Huawei question. Harold Moss has a question, and so does um, so does one of our other uh, attendees um, on Oran. So on Huawei, you know Harold asks, look, you know a lot of the IP theft that we've heard about and risks that we've heard about with Huawei even though there's this potential threat of leveraging technology what we've seen really in public reporting is uh, the reliance on human assets right sort of the, the folks at the ZTE story about the the person going in and taking that arm right uh, that 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 uh, the grappling arm um, isn't uh, does that argue in favor of a more targeted approach to Huawei and ZTE rather than to sort of outright ban of technologies or is an outright ban really the way to go given uh, the potential threat that such large-scale deployment might have uh, to our long-term economic success?
3: So I-, I would definitely say that I think the approach that the FCC and the uh, U.S. government have taken to essentially say that there are certain companies such as Huawei, Huawei, who pose a threat to our national security and should not be in our networks at all. I personally think that is the appropriate response. Okay. Um, I, I would say a couple of things in, your, in more specific response to that question. Number one, um, obviously there is public reporting and then there is information that is not on the public record. And right. Obviously, intelligence
1: information alike yes
3: and, and obviously we can i cannot speak about that information that's not on right. public record but i certainly think can, can say that the the decisions that the fcc has made in terms of what companies um pose a threat to national security through the communication supply chain has been informed by input from the executive yeah. branch including national yeah. security agencies
1: so so let's talk about that matthew though. so i how you know, one of the things the American people have struggled with, right, when it comes to Huawei ZTE and now on, on TikTok and WeChat and maybe some other stuff that's likely to come out, right, is how, how can we, uh, you know, obviously I've been on the inside, you've been on the inside, we've seen some this classified reporting, it's troubling. The House Intelligence Committee put out a report in 2013 that tried to declassify some information about Huawei and ZTE. But, you know, it's been seven years, right, how, how can we get better information out to the public, right? Including, you know, declassifying some information like about the very real threat that these companies pose, I think the American people would benefit from more information. How do we, how do we think about that problem? I realize you're not in the executive branch or whatever a quasi executive right agency. How do, how do we address that concern amongst sort of the technology community and and those who think, look, these are just competitors out there in the telecom environment. It's, you know, we should let them do what they're going to do.
3: So it's a great question, and, and there's an inherent tension. And, you know, I've been in this role. I also worked at, at the Department of Justice on Counterterrorism right. issues in the Bush administration. And right. there's just people who have somewhat public-facing policy roles, uh, like myself or like Chairman Pai, it certainly makes our lives easier if more information is declassified and we're right. able to. So, like, if it were up to me in terms of our role at the FCC, you know, just from a Uh, from the perspective of trying to persuade people of certain policies, then getting to know everything would be what we would like in the ideal world. But of course, there are valid reasons why intelligence does need to be classified. Sure. And you need to protect sources and methods and the like. And so there's always this inherent tension between those people that want more declassified and more people that want less declassified that takes place even within the federal government. Yeah. And you no, know, ultimately, we don't make the decisions on that, but i I certainly understand the perspective of people who say, "Well, why can't you just tell me everything that you're basing these decisions on?" So So that's yeah. point but point number two is that I would just ask people to understand, you know, based on what's publicly known and publicly reported, we know what the Chinese government system is like. Mm-hmm. We, it's, the information is basically public on what Huawei's role within the Chinese government system is. Right. Understand the Chinese legal system and their lack of checks and balances, their lack of judicial independence. Yes. Understand the basic posture that China has taken towards the world. Right. So I don't think it requires that much of a leap of faith in the United States government. Right. Come to the conclusion that letting Huawei into our nation's networks, and in particular, our 5G networks, is a risky thing to do.
1: Well, and I I want to make, that's a really important point you just made there, which is, you know, a lot of people say, you know, particularly you hear about uh, US government surveillance, they say, well, you know, the US government surveillance, China surveillance, it's all the same thing. I mean, the difference, of course, is a fundamental distinction. We do it under a system of laws, right? We do it under a system of judges and judicial oversight. You might not always agree with it. You might think it's a bad idea the way we do it, whatever, right? But we have a method. We have oversight. The Chinese government is a one-party government, the Communist Party, and they're not worried about any laws, any judges, any regulations. They're simply implementing the kind of surveillance and frankly, you know, interning people in prison camps, right? Millions of people in prison camps, you know, this is not, the moral equivalence. it's not the same thing, right? And I, I'm always constantly frustrated at the American public when we have these conversations. Say, well, but they do surrounds, we do surrounds Not the same thing. I'm on. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, Matthew. Yeah. Right. I was going to
3: say, you know, right now Huawei is challenging our ban on universal service funding for Huawei in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. They a have a right. Concept. They have a right to do that under our system of government. If a United States government if United States company was facing a similar ban in China, they don't have an independent judiciary to go to. Exactly. And also when it comes to surveillance tools, I mean, you're very well aware there have been many courts in the United States, the Southern district of New York, the second circuit that have issued rulings against United States intelligence authorities. Right. You can agree with those decisions. You can disagree with those decisions, but there's no doubt that there's judicial supervision of what's going on.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Um, all right. So a few more questions, then we'll wrap up Matthew. And thanks again for doing this. Um, how is How are you guys thinking about O-RAN, going back to O-RAN, right? Um, uh, how are you ensuring that you're not micromanaging network design or taking a top-down approach? You know, obviously, o not going to be a silver bullet, but it's going to be one piece of it, as you've said. Um, how do we ensure that sort of, we're not too in the weeds? You know, there's been some discussion of nationalized 5G. We've seen some sort of, you know, trial balloons floated. Uh, how do we avoid sort of command and control government involvement while still incentivizing the right behavior in the private sector?
3: You know, avoid regulatory mandates. You know, if you notice what the FCC has been doing, you know, we had a uh, forum to bring people from the public and private sectors together to talk about ORAN and the path forward, the advantages, the potential disadvantages, yeah. um, Chairman been speaking about it. Um, you know, there's been promotion in terms of commerce and OSTP doing things, mm-hmm. but no one has been talking about any kind of mandate the companies right. have to do this. Um, and I think that would be a gigantic mistake. I think that, um, encouraging, um, efforts, publicizing them, you know, potentially, you know, one could argue maybe help with research and development. That's a debate others can have, but at the end of the day, it really should be up to the network operators, Mm -hmm. um, to make broad technological decisions about what's the best way to protect security within a certain framework. We don't want, they shouldn't be using Huawei and the like, but- The ORAN decision is a fundamental decision about network architecture, and at the end of the day, I do think it's going to be a market-driven decision in terms of whether it's the best way to go, you know, DISH with their new carrier, they're, they're going open ORAN from, they're going ORAN from the start, others are kind of right. starting into it. I, I think you have to let the market decide, and I, I don't favor any kind of regulatory mandate in terms of ORAN. That makes sense. Well, listen, Matthew, thanks so much for being here. We have a
1: few more questions in the chat, but I don't think we'll be able to get to them, unfortunately. Uh, but we want to thank you for being here with us. We want to thank Chairman Pai and Emily Chang from Bloomberg. She's a terrific host. Um, and, and we want to talk about some of the things that we're still doing in this space. So as you might see on your right-hand side, uh, there's some papers we've written about the, the countering a hostile foreign threat by uh, Andy Kaiser, Brian Smith on, on Huawei and ZTE, the work that uh, digital authoritarians are doing to enforce their will and how we can counter that by Dr. Andrea Little-Limbago. Uh, The links are there on your right. Follow us on Twitter, at Mason Check us out on LinkedIn. We're out there. Matthew, thank you again for being here. And thank you to the chairman and Emily for doing this. Appreciate it. Everyone have a great afternoon.
0: Thank you for joining us for this presentation from the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Mason NatSec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Grant
2: Haver for production assistance.